while we're not sitting there and you know deliberately advocating for one thing or another we believe the work that we do allows our men and women to advocate for themselves and i think that's where the power lies give them the tools give them the ability to write their stories to learn how to get it published in a mainstream publication where they're going to be up against people that don't believe them or don't believe in them and yet they're able to do it with such strength and truth and power that people are interested in that and that's where change happens with over 2.3 million individuals behind bars the size of a small country and fewer than 10 prison news publications the united states's incarceration system is an information desert Exorbitant censorship practices and lack of internet access constrict the free flow of information through the walls, leaving correctional facilities vulnerable to the spread of fake news and conspiracy theories, and without the power to attract public attention for human rights issues in prison. Furthermore, incarcerated writers often encounter significant roadblocks to developing their own internal news sources by and for people in the system. The field of journalism is an endangered one, its decline only exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. As COVID spread rapidly and devastatingly through the country, much about its course behind bars, deaths, infection rates, safety measures, etc., was kept hidden from the public. The pandemic has emphasized the need for credible journalists in prison who can provide outside communities with news about what is happening behind bars. Prison journalism helps force accountability from the system itself. Yukari Kane and Shaheen Pasha co-founded the Prison Journalism Project at the onset of the pandemic to help revegetate this carceral media desert from the inside out, providing incarcerated writers with the tools, training, and pathways to publication they need to establish themselves as credible journalists. Both Pasha and Kane began their careers as journalists, eventually expanding into higher education. When they met, Kane was teaching at San Quentin News, the only newspaper in the country fully operated by incarcerated writers. Pasha had launched various immersive and collaborative journalism courses behind bars. In this Works of Justice podcast interview, Pasha and Kane speak about their respective paths to co-founding the Prison Journalism Project at a critical moment in the COVID-19 crisis. I'm Francis Cohan, PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Fellow, and thank you for listening. First, of course, I just want to thank you both um, for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm really excited to hear about your work through and beyond um, Prison Journalism Project. So my first question, I just want to know if you can speak a bit about your respective paths to getting involved, you know, first in journalism and then journalism behind bars and eventually to founding um, Prison Journalism Project. I mean, I can go first, Yukari, if you mm-hmm. want. For me, I've wanted to be a journalist my whole life because I love telling stories. So it was something that um, I've been planning for since I was five years old to be. But um, when I started out my career, uh, I started out in business journalism and, and legal news. So I covered a lot of court cases and um, you know corporate fraud, things like that. Nothing really to do with criminal justice in the you know non-white collar sense. I worked for places like you know Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal and, and CNN. But for me, even though I covered these court cases and I, you know, covered the Supreme Court, I actually really became involved in this world when it actually touched home. You know, I became uh, one of the millions of people who actually has a loved one who is incarcerated. In my case, it was actually uh, my best friend who I grew up with, who I absolutely adore. And he was arrested and ultimately convicted and incarcerated for 150 years inside New Jersey. And that number and just that reality sort of shifted 
everything for me because when I went to actually visit him inside the New Jersey State Prison for the first time and those those doors closed, I really realized this was a world I knew nothing about. And I think the vast majority of us know nothing about on the outside. And in talking to him, I realized just how many stories and how much potential there was behind bars that was just totally hidden and untapped. And I saw somebody that I cared about who's just basically withering away, had you know, super smart, had a lot of ambition and had absolutely nothing to do, very little programming. And it really just kind of stuck with me. So I was a young reporter then and there wasn't much I felt like I could do about it, but it, it haunted me for many, many years. And even though I continued as a, a journalist and I became foreign correspondent, when I switched into um, full-time academia, I became a professor of journalism. It was like the first time I actually had the ability to do something about this thing that had bothered me for a long time. So I started volunteering inside of a local jail. And when I went to that local jail and asked them, hey, you know, can I volunteer? They were really excited about it. They said, of course, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you come teach, but what do you want to teach? And, you know, I said journalism and everything shut down. It was an absolute no, because journalism has this very traditionally antagonistic relationship with Department of Corrections. But what happened was, you know, kind of massaging the words and changing the semantics around. I said, I teach media writing, which is ultimately journalism, but couched nicely. And it was a hit. The, the men I worked with, they, they loved learning the tools of journalism. They loved being able to you know, tell their own stories. And for the first time, they realized that their stories mattered. So for me, it kind of opened up this like world of, okay, this can be done. We can do this. I created this um, immersive class where I actually brought in students from the college I was teaching at UMass Amherst into the local jail. And they were doing reporting. They were actually doing storytelling and creating ideas and People on the outside were getting the outside statistics. The guys on the inside were interviewing each other. And I realized this should be not only done in the small county jail, this should be a national kind of initiative. So I went into the mindset of, okay, we need to, we need to teach them how to do this because people can't just do journalism without understanding how to do it. So I started figuring out how to do a curriculum and a textbook. And I was really lucky, um, actually. I got the Knight Visiting Neiman Fellowship at Harvard to do just this, to create a curriculum, to create a textbook, to be able to take this to a national level. And in the process, I was researching other prison newspapers and came across the San Quentin News, which um, is an amazing publication. And everybody could tell me, you need to go meet these guys and you need to go meet their advisor, Yukari Kane. So in 2018, that's what I did. I went out to basically pick the brains of the guys at San Quentin and harass Yukari about finding out how she did what she did. And it was like instant synergy. She and I met and we realized that we wanted to do this together. And in 2018, we joined forces and the Prison Journalism Project came out of that. Um, so I, uh, I've been a journalist for about 20 years as well. I've been also uh, mostly a business journalist covering technology for organizations like Reuters and the Wall Street Journal. I grew up in the 80s and I'm Japanese and there was a lot of, um, you know, US-Japan trade conflict and uh, I just saw a lot of misunderstandings all around. And so I wanted to um, become a journalist to, to help shed light and to tell stories in a deeper way get beyond um, the surface. But I had nothing to do with um, incarceration. I wasn't touched by it personally. I, I wasn't involved in, in criminal justice. I mean, I knew that um, the U.S. had a broken system and that it unfairly targeted and, and punished Black men in particular, and I was against the death penalty. But, um, you know, it wasn't one of my causes. And one day I got an email from a friend who said that San Quentin News was looking for a journalism instructor to teach guys who wanted to write for San Quentin News, which is the only uh, entirely prisoner run newspaper in the country inside prison. 
And so I just decided to do it because I had the time at the time and um, thought, you know, maybe I get outside of my box a little bit. And it was just completely transformative for me. Um, You know, to be honest, I think, you know, when I first started, um, I knew that the system was broken and I was, you know, sympathetic to a a lot of the, the challenges and the reasons, but there was always this sense that, you know, people were inside because they committed crimes and that they were criminals. And, um, and until I got there, it didn't really connect for me that all the issues that so many of us care about out here, about homelessness, about urban poverty and public school education and mental health, um, all of these issues, child welfare, um, they are so intricately connected to the incarceration system that, that a lot of the issues and challenges are, are what led to so many men and women ending up in prison. And then other challenges were ones that they face when they come out and often bring them back inside again. And so, you know, if we care about any of those issues, we also have to care about incarceration. And then, you know, as a journalist, you know, again, I became a journalist to tell stories about people that can't tell stories themselves or or to, to shed light in a way that doesn't see the light of day. And there's so many stories inside. If they had the ability to tell them, um, you know, and, 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 you know, frankly, as a journalist, it's tempting. I hear some stories. I'm like, oh, I would really love to write that story. But um, I just felt like they should be told themselves within the community that nobody could do a better job than they could. Um, that as, as an outside journalist, it was impossible to get really deep and get to know people enough to be able to tell it in the way that it should be told and the way it could be told. And so I just felt like my role, you know, in this space was to support, to edit, to help conceive and and shape the story. And then also for us to be training our writers in the tools of journalism so um, they could tell the stories themselves. Thank you both so much. Those answers are really great. And it's cool to hear about how you sort of came from different but similar starting places and then found each other with Prison Journalism Project and at San Quentin News. Um, And I am really interested, particularly in the development of the curriculum and sort of the nitty gritty behind the scenes of Prison Journalism Project, because obviously, you know, if you go to your website, you see the great um, stories that you publish journalism, but also poetry, sort of other things. But I'm curious about the other side, how you provide incarcerated writers with this training. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you develop and carry out the training and how you also sort of tailor this teaching to the particular difficulties of um, writing in prison. Both of us are actually still teaching behind bars. You know, the pandemic hit, everything shut down, but we are still doing it. Yukari is with the Northwestern a prison education program. So she's doing correspondence course. I'm teaching via Zoom inside um, the, one of the local county jails here in Pennsylvania. When we think about education, we realize that we're working with a population that has varied um, backgrounds in terms of their educational attainment. So what we try to do is um, really sort of keep it straightforward. We're in the process of creating um, what we call PJPJ School, which is a correspondence-based course that relies on modules that break down the different elements of um, journalism from from lead writing to observational skills. One of the real advantages our men and women have is they're naturally very strong observers. And people don't realize just how much of journalism involves the ability to observe what's happening around you and constantly be aware of changing scenarios and staying on top of those things. And what we found is our writers are naturally good at that, just given the place they're at. 
So with these modules, we try to teach them how to take those observations and then write them in these, you know, exercises and be able to kind of break down the process of, you know, creating an inverted pyramid, understanding what information is the most important, how to separate your um, opinion, which is very difficult, difficult for everybody, but definitely inside to separate opinion from just what you can factually verify how to disperse a rumor. So these are some of the challenges that we we do have inside. But um, this this program, we're creating the, the PJP module. It's a uh, handout based. So we have uh, an amazing group of volunteers that um, we're going to be tapping to be able to create some of these handouts. While that is under creation, we have been, you know, for a while now, creating just basic tip sheets and primers and journalism primers that we send inside. So they're kind of like FAQs almost of the way journalism is done. So people understand what a lead is. People understand how to attribute. There's a style guide. So they understand how to do things. And we call it the PJP style guide because it's based on the AP, but there's also different elements that we've tailored to um, prison life and prison um, words. So these are things that every time uh, one of our writers sends us something, definitely when it gets published, we acknowledge that publication and we send it back to them. And we include these, these handouts and we include these tip sheets. We also um, have already started a contributing writers program. You know, some writers are just happy to get their stuff published. They just want to see their things up there. Other writers, which we find very quickly, are eager to learn how to improve their writing and how to take it to the next level, how to become actual prison journalists. So they rise to the top fairly quickly. And after they publish a certain amount of a certain quality that we you know, consider our spotlights or features, we invite them to join us as contributing writers, and they get a lot more one-on-one -on -one sort of feedback and, and editing and training. It's very difficult, given that we've published, I believe, since last year, over 500 stories with over 200 writers. It's very difficult always to be able to do um, in-depth one-on-ones, but even then, we do try to send them stories back with annotations and some understanding of how their work has been changed. But with our contributing writers, we do develop that relationship a little bit more closely. And they're honestly the first ones that we're going to be inviting to join us when the PJPJ school officially launches. In terms of um, just the, the way it would go, we send these modules in. It's all mail-based. Then they do the assignments. They do the work. They send it back to us. We have volunteers, as I mentioned, who are going to be helping us to write these handouts. And these are people that have been journalists for decades and are extremely, um, extremely talented and, and well-established. So we have a really great pool of talent that is willing to go in through these handouts and work with our writers. One of the things in journalism, which I'm sure Yukari would agree with, is that it is a very elitist industry and it is very difficult for people to break through, especially, you know, people from marginalized communities. You know, both of us are women of color. And, you know, we had our own struggles. We were fortunate. We were in a newsroom. We were able to have mentors, people that were willing to work with us. So what we want to do through um, the PJPJ school and through the publishing side of the Prison Journalism Project is to kind of provide that mentorship and be able to help give those skill sets and help them to hone their, their writing skills a little bit better to be able to take it to the next level. We see ourselves as a launching pad. The ultimate goal is for our writers to be trained enough that they can get their stuff published in mainstream publications. And we've already been really fortunate. A number of our contributing writers have been published in you know, the Washington Post or um, the San Francisco Public Press or the Marshall Project. So we have a really great group that's already starting to benefit from the work we're doing inside. Thank you so much. That's really cool to hear about. Um, and this is sort of similar to what you touched upon. And it's something that we encounter a lot you know, in our work at Penn, but um, there are sort of a whole host of challenges that every incarcerated writer mm -hmm. faces, not only just to like 
sitting down and writing, but also to getting published, which you touched on briefly, um, to connecting with other writers inside. And I can only imagine that, you know, without access to the internet or to sort of outside sources, a lot of them incarcerated journalists face, you know, even greater difficulties. So I'm curious about how you approach this intersection of um, these challenges. So A, just writing behind bars itself, but B, journalism without sort of sufficient access to the internet or the outside world. And, you know, a hot topic now is fake news. So how do you approach mm-hmm. fact checking, um, which is, you know, an essential part of journalism? So I can talk about that and and I'll talk about what we're doing now and what we hope to do in the future once we get some uh, increase our funding, et cetera. So right now, um, the starting point for our writers is we have a three-page list, a long list of writing prompts that are are geared towards helping them um, get a start and also give them some idea of the kind of stories and information that they could provide to an outside readership uh, that could be interesting, but also shedding light. And so they they run the gamut from things about COVID um, and the vaccination situation, as well as any um, you know outbreaks, to prison life, to um, prison conditions, etc. And the vast majority of stories coming in right now are essays because there just aren't enough writers uh, who are trained in journalism. There aren't enough journalism education programs inside. And so um, they take the form of personal essays. And so what we've been trying to do is um, to try to work with them to turn them into reported essays. And so that means um, just being a little bit more intentional with observation, integrating some interviewing, being more um, precise, factual in observation, and honestly cutting out a lot of um the speculation that creeps in, the suppositions, like, for example, um, they might say that, you know, prison administration is doing X, Y, Z because they don't want us to have something. And we'll cut that out because unless they've spoken to somebody in the prison administration and they've said this, that, um, you know, that's their perception. So we might cut it out or we might change it to say, in my opinion. So so we, we kind of edit in um, the proper context and the transparency in terms of attribution and what is opinion and what isn't. And that that we think is really important. And we do think that, you know, no matter how much they get trained, the, the biggest competitive advantage, if you will, for incarcerated writers is that first person reporting, observation, interviews. Those are things that um, outside reporters just don't have access to as much as they would. And, and they probably wouldn't get the honest answers um, that they, they would get either. That's what we really emphasize right now. And in terms of fact-checking, we just don't have the manpower right now to do a thorough fact-check. We would like to. Uh, so what we do is uh, we, we have a couple of things. One, we have a disclaimer at the end of every story saying that we don't fact-check. And then uh, we ask our volunteer editors and we ourselves do make sure that, that we run at least a basic fact-check. So um, names of organizations, names of their prisons, um, any institutions are referred to in full with their official names on first reference, for example. Uh, we, we explain any shorthand. We make sure we're spelling out abbreviations, that sort of thing. So combining all of that, we try to do the the minimum to make sure that that the stories do have integrity and then be very clear about what we're not doing. Going forward, I think our intent is fully to have a fact checker on staff, to have researchers 
you know, we hope to have formerly incarcerated journalists, you know, ideally coming through our PJP curriculum and, and our um, inside programs, and they could assist with the reporting. And so even today with the contributing writers, it's been awesome because they've started to understand where they need outside research help. And so I've started seeing stories where there's a little note for us and says, you know, could you plug in the most recent COVID number here? And that's for, for me, like that's, that's a huge win because they're starting to understand what they can't get inside and what they can get inside. And so, you know, part of the support that we want to be able to provide is to make sure that we, we can do that outside reporting to supplement their inside reporting. Thank you. That's so interesting. Earlier, Shaheen, in your first answer, you talked about, you know, the antagonistic relationship that often exists between journalism and prison officials. And then you have both spoken about the constant back and forth of writing from the inside to the outside. And then Yukari, in your answer, you just spoke about like someone writing, you know, the prison is doing such and such. And so um, obviously each time writing goes back and forth, it's monitored by prison officials and there's opportunity for censorship. So I was curious if you've had any tensions. Um, You spoke about this a little in the language of journalism versus sort of media, but if you've had tensions in this back and forth of the writing, and if so, how do you work around that? Um, and then sort of building off that something that we think about in our program a bit, but how do you, you know, protect the writers from retribution, but also ensure that they can write freely? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. We've been um, somewhat fortunate in the sense that because we're not going through an established kind of individual prison education program that falls under the educational portions of the prison, it's much more directly interactive with the incarcerated men and women through um, through JPay or core links or through um, letters. So we haven't had anyone from an administration kind of shut down, officially shut down anything that we're trying to do inside because we don't really go through them. We're kind of circumventing and going straight to the people inside. That being said, um, you know, both of us are obviously teaching within established um, prison education programs as well. So there is some understanding of, you know, having to play by the rules and, you know, kind of explaining for me, I I can speak for myself, for me kind of explaining that this is the work I'm doing, this is what I'm handing in. And so far, I haven't had any sort of um, pushback, any sort of major pushback. There might be some concern about, okay, well, you know, how do you make sure they don't just tell lies or stuff like that? But, you know, I, I haven't run into that. That being said, you know, I have heard back from some of our writers that, you know, yeah, sometimes they've had people inside their facilities comment on, well, you're, you're certainly saying a lot now, or you're certainly writing a lot, or you have a big mouth or things like that. So it's one of those things that we have tried to um, work with our writers and find to make sure that they're secure and they're safe. In terms of how to assure their safety, I don't think there's any way anybody on the outside can ensure somebody's safety. We've had discussions with our writers. We make sure that um, they understand what they're asking us to publish. We ourselves will not publish anything that we cannot verify, like accusations or things like that. But we do make sure that they're aware that there are always risks. And you know, a number of my writers have told us that what we feel is that we need to have agency. Everything has been taken away from us. We need to have the ability to make the decision of what we're willing to fight for. Others have said, you know, what more can people take from me? So I think that remembering that they are men and women of agency inside and giving them the power to decide what they're comfortable writing about is part of how we view our relationship with our writers. I would just add one more thing is um, one of the areas that we've discussed uh, internally is bylines. And so journalistically uh, for transparency, we would, we would love for 
as many of our writers as possible to uh, publish under their first and last names, because just as a general principle in journalism, if you're going to say something, um, it's much more credible to say it identifying yourself rather than to, to write something anonymously. But we also recognize that our writers are writing in difficult conditions. And so what we've decided to do is we um, explain to them why we really encourage them to publish under their first and last names. But if they don't feel comfortable, then the second thing we would like to do is to be able to articulate why they're withholding their first or last name. You know, trying to communicate via mail and, and JPay email can be difficult. And so if they do ask for uh, their stories to be published anonymously or first name only um, without a reason, we will still do that. And so, you know, I think for us, the way we're dealing with many of these challenges is, is just that we are transparent. We try to be transparent about every decision we're making and being transparent about what we know and what we don't know. And so with the bylines, um, you'll see that it says this writer has asked for his name to be withheld. Um, and the reason why we say that is because we want the reader to know that we know who they are. We don't publish any story by somebody who hasn't been verified. But we're also honoring their wishes as well in recognition of the, the challenging situation they're in. Thank you. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, how like even a pseudonym can sort of be interpreted differently in a journalism space. That's mm -hmm. really interesting. I'm curious again about something you touched on earlier about sort of like the content of the writers, you know, at PEN America, we talk a little bit about how there are disadvantages and advantages of using the term prison writing. And I'm curious about how you think about uh, the content of prison journalism. So, you know, does the content of the writing you receive concern issues primarily behind bars or your writer sort of thinking and writing about issues beyond prison? You know, that's an interesting one. And I think we're still thinking through it and it's always evolving. Um, we have had writers uh, sending in stories that don't have anything to do um, with their situations or their, their environments. And I think we're at a place right now where, you know, we are the prison journalism project and, you know, we have to have focus. There's so many reasons to publish writing from inside, but our reason is that we want to support our writers so they can shed light from the inside about their own communities. And in doing so, we think they can shift the narrative about criminal justice and ultimately change the system, make it better. You know, it's not, we don't do direct advocacy. It's, you know, it's, we, we want to work in the same way that any good journalism works. We want to publish and we want to empower and amplify their voices ultimately to shed light about criminal justice. And quite frankly, I think if you're trying to, um, pitch a story to an outside publication from an incarcerated writer, it's a hard sell. You know, they, it wouldn't be transparent unless it was clear that they were writing from inside the walls. And, and I think the interest would be on how whatever they're writing about touches them personally. And so um, I think in that sense, in terms of what we want to do, we do work with them on stories about and around prison, but inclusive of all the, the challenges and experiences that led them there. And then with formerly incarcerated writers, you know, the challenges of reentering and, and, and the joys too. 
Thank you. Um, you touched in your answer briefly on advocacy. And I think, you know, the line between writing or art and advocacy is in this justice art space, definitely difficult to identify sometimes and a lot of times to preserve. Um, so I'm curious if you could speak a bit about, you know, how you approach and maintain that distinction. So, you know, if you receive a piece that writes about clear abuses in the system or situations that, you know, might really call for advocacy, what do you do? Or if you receive a piece, I saw on your site that there are some pieces written by family members who have incarcerated loved ones. Um, how do you sort of approach those scenarios? Yeah, it is a challenge because, you know, we we feel for people inside, we feel for the community, both those inside and those outside that are affected by it. But, you know, as a journalistic organization, I think we have had to, from the beginning, kind of hold for us, what Yukari and I are comfortable with is to, you know, show we are here to tell the stories, to share what's happening inside and outside with those impacted but we are doing it in a journalistic fashion and are, are not advocates. We do not advocate a certain cause. We don't advocate for individual um, writers and their cases. In fact, one of the guidelines that we have for our writers is that, you know, we won't publish anything about a person's personal case, you know, that they can't write pieces that are trying to retry their case in the media for us. That being said, you know, we have had, you know, writers that have talked about, you know, different abuses or things that have happened to them inside. And even in those cases, you know, we will ask them, you know, do you have any sort of documentation that we can, you know, share that we can include? And in those cases we have, they have shared it with us and they have provided us with information to show where the complaints were, you know, what the findings were. So things like that, we feel like you can absolutely highlight and you should. I mean, part of our job as journalists is to show, you know, what's hidden, but it has to be done in a responsible way so that you don't wind up, you know, basically telling stories or rumors, right, that you can't sort of verify. So we're very careful with that. In terms of um, advocacy, while we're not sitting there and, you know, deliberately advocating for one thing or another. We believe the work that we do allows our men and women to advocate for themselves. And I think that's where the power lies. I think for men and women incarcerated, if they can have the tools to be able to tell their own stories, to be able to do it with nuance, to be able to do it with power, and be able to then get that on a platform that is not necessarily just a niche platform that is only seen by people within that own community, but a wider platform of people that may not even agree with them right? That is where the power to change actually happens. So for us, our whole mission is to be able to give them the tools, give them the ability to write their stories, to learn how to get it published in a mainstream publication where they're going to be up against people that don't believe them or don't believe in them. And yet they're able to do it with such strength and truth and power that people are interested in that. And that's where change happens. What you need is people that may not have thought about it before suddenly becoming interested in the lives of people behind bars. And for people behind bars and people that are formerly incarcerated or incarceration impact to be the people at the front leading the change that we're gonna see. So I think for us, what we consider our publication is, is a launching pad to be able to do that, to tell your stories. But as a publication, we make it very clear that we're not going to be advocating for any individual or cause. And we will publish different viewpoints. Some that, you know, Kari and I may not even agree with necessarily as long as it's factually credible and that, you know, we can give it a platform. Thank you. I really love that answer. And I think it is so powerful. Like writing is itself a form of advocacy, it doesn't necessarily need to be distinct. So I think that is really great to sort of hear more specifically about. And so my last question, sort of thinking about 
looking forward. Um, obviously, you founded Prison Journalism Project during COVID. Just founding anything during a pandemic is challenging in itself. And then founding something during a pandemic that works with people behind bars sort of is another layer of difficulty. So, A, I was sort of wondering if you could just touch briefly on what it was like to found this during a pandemic and then also just how you see your work changing. You, again, touched a bit on this, but after the pandemic is over and how you just see it sort of growing and maturing in the next, say, five years or so. Well, you know, for us, I think, you know, the pandemic was, um, you know, I hate to use the word opportunity because it was such a bad situation, Um, but it did, it showed us a way that we can do our work effectively without going through official channels because we were forced into the situation where we had no choice. Our only avenue was to work with our writers on an individual basis because all the programs were closed. And so it, it showed us a way to work um, and probably to reach writers who don't have programs. And so that has really um, shaped, I think, the way we're going to work going forward. Going forward, we'll want to uh, work with the programs as well as they, as they reboot again. I think, um, you know, right now, a big component of the stories are pandemic related, whether it's about the vaccination rollout, the continued um, cases of infection and the conditions around that. I think for a while, um, just as every media organization is going to have their stories, we're going to have ours as well about programs coming back. What's that first visitation like after they haven't been able to see their families in person for a year? you know, those kinds of stories. And I think if anything, the pandemic stories has also uh, shown us what kind of news and events are possible to come out. And I think it's, you know, I I think a big part of what we do is uh, we create awareness about things and events and um, situations uh, that happen inside and what should be known outside. And so, um, you know, recently, for example, we had a couple stories and and articles from writers in California because their their tablet vendor was going to be changed. The California Department of Rehabilitation was going to end their um, relationship with JPay and they were going to move to GTL tablets. And so they wrote about what that meant. And so they're starting to see, they're starting to think about what they want outside world to know how they want things to be changed and how they can add to that conversation. And so that's not going to change, um, you know, five years down the line. I think we'd like to be doing meteor stories. As we get funding, we'd like to bring some um, supporting uh, reporters and editors on so we can just make their stories better and help, you know, provide the background with outside reporting to, to solidify the stories and, and to continue to help polish their craft. Um, We would like to um, do a lot more collaborative journalism. And so part of, you know, what we see as an opportunity here is we have over 200 writers across 28 states and and Canada right now, and and we're constantly working to increase our writing pool so it, it reflects the diversity of this community. But if we can connect the dots about anything, you know, between prisons, between states, you know, maybe someday across borders, then there are stories that we can shed light that may not be like hard hitting investigative stories, um, because there are real consequences for our writers, but it could still shed light in a powerful way, you know, um, 
there already is some good work on, on prison food, for example, and how they're different from state to state, from prison to prison. There's just, you know, for every aspect of prison life, I think you can, you can do these stories that, that connect the dots. And so that's definitely in our sights. Um, Shaheen can talk more about the education, um, our education aspirations as well. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to add there that for me and for you, Kari, education has been the foundation of this, what we started. So ultimately, what we would like is for our, our curriculum, for our modules to be in you know, prisons around nationally, around the country, and ultimately to have um, credit bearing programs attached to them. The program uh, that I taught back in Massachusetts, it did give credit to our um, incarcerated men. And for me, that was a huge win because I did not want it to just go to waste. I mean, they, they're learning something, but I want it to be taken to the next level where they can also be able to go on and get higher education for it. So credit bearing um, courses is something we are really, really all about. We want to partner with um, more university programs, and other prison education programs around the country to have our materials inside. We're in the process of creating a textbook. It would be the first complete total guide for prison journalists, um, a reporting guide for prison journalists textbook. That would also have a comic component to it because we understand that, you know, our men and women have different learning styles and we want to make sure that it's accessible to everybody. And, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, both the curriculum side and the publishing side, our goal is to create a nationwide um, prison journalist network. That is what we are aiming to do. We want to have correspondence in um, prisons and jails around the country. That's something that's important to us. One of the statistics I always throw out, which we all know 2.3 million people are behind bars. That's the size of a small country. How do you have an entire population the size of a small country without any local correspondence where everyone reporting about them is the equivalent of a foreign correspondent? That blows my mind. And I think if we give them the educational tools and the um, publishing tools to be able to do that, I think we can absolutely accomplish that over the next few years. And the one thing I would um, also add is we don't believe in journalism for exposure. Um, this has been something that Shaheen and I have um, agreed on from the very beginning, which is that, you know, right now we ourselves are an all-volunteer team. We, we put in our time um, and we're raising funds um, and, and, and that's still coming. Um, but our, our goal is to pay our writers for the best work. And so, um, you know, kind of as a placeholder and a reminder to us of this goal, we started paying uh, for a story, the best story of the week, which is chosen by a roster of volunteers and team members and, and various people in our community. So it's not us that's doing the choosing. But our goal is to, to pay our writers for their best work. And then part of our mission, too, is, you know, it's not we're, we don't want to be exclusive. Um, you know, we do have a publication. It's meant to be a launching pad, as Shaheen said. And we see our function as helping our writers get out and, and to tell their stories more broadly. And so we also provide support in doing one on one work, helping them get their op-eds published, edited. We help edit and work on pitches to publications um, and so forth. And um, those payments for that work goes entirely to the writer. You know, we think it's really important that, that that's not how we get funded. That's whatever, whatever that, that payment is goes 100% to that writer. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you talk about over 2 million incarcerated. And now a hot topic is, you know, decline of local journalism and, and news deserts and over 2 million in prison. That is a media desert and a news desert. So 
I think that the work you guys are doing is really awesome. And I'm just so happy that we get to feature you on this temperature check and we get to feature in our dispatch from the inside, um, one of the pieces that's on your site. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really enjoyed learning more about your work and yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast episode was written, hosted, and produced by myself with guidance from Prison and Justice Writing Director Kate Meisner and Manager Robbie Pollock. We invite you to check out this Temperature Checks Dispatch from the Inside, which features one of the articles published in Prison Journalism Project's online publication. And don't forget to check out Prison Journalism Project's website, which has published nearly 500 articles, essays, poems, and multimedia stories by over 190 writers in 28 states at prisonjournalismproject.org.